All right. Uh, welcome, everybody, uh, to the ISEP Connect. Um, we have an awesome, um, awesome panel together today. I'm just here. Uh, my name is Russell Martin. I'm the Secretary General of ISEP. I'm here to just give a couple public service announcements. Um, the deadline to register for early bird for the ISEP 2023 conference in Chile is the 15th of May. Um, so you still have some time on that. Um, all the announcements or all the decisions on abstracts have already um, come in. Um, so you should have a decision on that. Um, I'm putting the ISEP website uh, for the conference on there. So if you're looking for um, accommodations for the hotels, uh, they are listed on that website. Um, so you have a, a special conference rate for those. But um, and also just a brief uh, announcement, we are relaunching our website. So that should be up in a couple weeks. We're going to have a brand new website coming up. And with that, um, your membership has also changed. So if you have not re, um, repurchased your membership, um, all of them expire at the beginning of the year. So if you need to uh, um, redo your membership, that's a good time to do it. So let me uh, hand it over to Carla Luguetti and uh, we'll get going. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Risto. Hello, everybody. So my name is Carla Luguetti. I'm a senior lecturer in health and PE. Uh, I'm originally from Brazil, but now working at Victoria University, Australia. Uh, I have been working with the activist approach in the, last, in the last 10 years of my academic life, and I am honored to be here today facilitating this ICEP Connect titled Activist Approach to Physical Activity, International Perspectives, Today we have here three amazing scholars, three amazing presenters, and I will introduce them individually before their presentations. Uh, my introduction will be in a more personal way. I think you, you all can read their CVs, but I believe this space should be to acknowledge some of what I learned and you know, some of their contributions to the activist approach. Uh, each presenter will have 10 to 15 minutes to speak, and I will control the time, I promise. And then we have a Q&A at the end. So please write your question in the chat. Do not wait until the end. As soon as you have a question, please use, use the chat function to write your question. You can write in English, Spanish, or Portuguese. And I will organize all questions to the last part of our session today. So our first presenter is Kim Oliver. Kim Oliver is from New Mexico State University. I am delighted to have Kim here. Uh, if you don't know, Kim is the creator of the activist approach. So more than 27 years ago, a long time ago, I met Kim 10 years ago, so in 2014, so I was doing my PhD. Kim, you might remember I was quite lost. Uh, Kim guided me to a kind of transformational journey in becoming an activist teacher or an activist researcher. After that, I, I did my postdoc with Kim. We wrote several papers and now we are writing a book. So Kim is like my academic mama, we could say. Um, when I was trying to convince Kim to come here on board, you know, to the ICEP Connect, I said, Kim, other people should have the chance to listen to you, to understand a little bit more about the history of the activist approach and your inspirations. Sometimes in papers, we can't capture that. So uh, I truly believe, you know, the activist approach impact my life, changed my life. So I'm really glad that Kim introduced me to this approach. Thanks for being here, Kim. The floor is yours. All right. Well, thank you for inviting me. And, and she didn't really invite me. She informed me that I was going to do this. And, and so here I am. I, I'm kind of... I, I prefer to be in the background and I prefer to just do the work and then be done with it. And 
whatever, but no, that that's not what Carla would let me do. So, so thank you for having me. Um, I just wanted to give you a little bit of background about how the activist approach to teaching in physical education or physical activity came to be. So like Carla said, 27 years ago in 1996, I started my work um, with the hopes of better understanding how adolescent girls were constructing of the meanings of their bodies. I wanted to know how educators could work with girls to assist them in the process of naming, critiquing, and transforming parts of physical culture that were threatening their health and their physical activity participation. I had absolutely no idea where that work would eventually lead. But what I think when I look across my career, there have been two things that have been constant. One is a commitment to listening and responding to young people. And the second is a commitment to assisting them in learning to create that which might be. And so ultimately, I got to a place where I began to better understand the process that I was working with girls and how I was working with girls because I was I was doing things and it seemed natural and people are like, well, can you put it into language? And I thought, well, no, I don't, I'm not sure I can put it into language. But I started in 2009 really trying to document systematically what I was doing because other people were starting to want to learn about it. And so in 2009, I, I worked with a group of my pre-service teachers and the intent was, I've got to figure out what I am doing, how I am doing this, and how I can teach others to do it. And it was through that project that we um, developed what is now called student-centered inquiry as curriculum. And sometimes people will interchange that with the activist approach. And, and for me, it is interchangeable. It's how I do an activist approach, but it isn't the only way to do it. So I think it's really important to understand this is a process. It's the process that I came to, to put words to actions. It's how we work with kids in physical education settings. And this process reflected both my commitment to student-centered pedagogy, my commitment to inquiry-based learning and my commitment to listening and responding to youth across time. And so it allowed me to work with young people to co-construct a learning environment, but also to co-construct a physical education curriculum that was designed to better meet their activity needs. And so student-centered inquiry as curriculum really is just a systematic way of listening and responding. And it involves three main phases. The first phase is building the foundation. This is something that you do once. It's something that we do at the beginning of a school year, but in some of our work that, that's coming down the line, we're finding that we need to carry it across time. But in the work I do in PE settings, it happens at the beginning. And the foundation is it, of this phase is to co-create an environment that allows for mutual understanding, respect, and learning among all the people involved in the educational setting. Here we work with students to better understand their perceptions of physical education, their perceptions of physical activity. We work with them to understand their perceptions of what it takes to create an emotionally and physically safe learning environment from their perspectives. And then we collaborate with students to create ways that we can work together. So we have all of this information and then collectively it's all right, what are we going to do with this information? And we come up with the ways that we're going to work together. And finally, we introduce students to in, in the U.S. We have standards. We have physical education standards that are different by state, although 
they're pretty similar across the states, I would say. And so we seek to understand students' learning interests in relation to our state PE standards of what is expected learning in school. And so that's the first phase. And you'll see that kind of down at the bottom of the, the diagram. And from there, we move into the cyclical process. So from here on out, everything just goes in a circle and it, it's a way of working. But our second phase is moving from building to foundation. We plan, we teach, we reflect, we collect data from students, we analyze that data as we're working to broaden students' perspectives of what is possible in PE. Because for us in New Mexico, and I'm, I'm learning that it's not all that different in other parts of the US, certainly, and, and maybe even other parts of the world, but certainly in New Mexico, they hit high school and they've done the same things year after year after year after year. You know, they run around the track, they play the same sports, and, and they have no idea of what is possible with respect to physical activity. So things that they may have never done, we try to bring that in so that students can learn what, what's out there and what do they really want to learn more about. So we do a variety of sampler lessons and we do this across time. And the focus is on different content that students haven't tried in PE and different ways of learning that content. So part of it is to help them to experience something that they may not have even known they could have learned about. Yoga, for example, is something that a lot of our kids like to do that they'd never heard about till they hit high school. It's like, well, why is yoga PE? So it's things that would be physical activity that they may not have done. But we also look at, do you learn best through direct teaching or through convergent and divergent discovery, or when you're doing peer and self-feedback, what helps you learn best? So the idea in the second phase is simply to broaden their perspective of what is possible. It is absolutely not about becoming proficient in any one content area. Um, that is not the purpose. And then the final phase is kind of our activist piece. And here we take everything that we have learned from kids in those first two sessions where we have all of their perceptions of what they need to make things work for them. They've, they've experienced all of these activities. And then it's like, all right, where do we want to focus your learning? And so again, it's this systematic process of developing curriculum with the students that take their learning interests as reflected in the standards, because it isn't just about doing whatever kids want to do. And this part is where I had to, and it, it, I had to move away from what traditional physical education was. And when I was going through school, traditional physical education was we do our basketball, we do our soccer, we do our dance unit, we do whatever unit we're going to do. And I couldn't respond to students and stay within that structure. And so we moved to thematic units of instruction in our co-constructing a curriculum because kids wanted variety of activity. It was the single biggest motivator for them to participate. Well, right, good PE teachers know that you're not gonna become proficient and really good at things if you only do it once or twice. We know that, but we also were learning the kids aren't gonna be active if, if we can't help them find things that they enjoy doing. And they don't wanna do the same thing over and over and over. Certainly not the kids that I work with. Maybe others of you have kids that like that, but my kids are like absolutely not having any of that. And so rather than do a basketball unit or a dance unit or a gymnastics unit or whatever unit, we started to find themes that were based on their learning interests. In the past couple of years, We've been doing a variety of themes around stress reduction and how to use physical activity to reduce and or manage stress because the kids are, are asking for that kind of information. And so this last phase um, kind of helps us take what we are learning from them and put it into practice. So the student-centered process became the way that I started to work with my pre-service teachers 
as I was having them work with young people in PE settings as part of their university experience. And so all of that was happening like 2009 to 2013. It was when I was was working to put language to what I was doing and then how do we get this into the schools? How do we teach other people how to do it and how to talk about it? And then in 2015, it was probably a little bit earlier than that, but David Kirk says to me, Kim, you've got to publish a book. And I'm like, no, I, I don't. I really don't have to do this. And he's like, yeah, you have to do it. You've got to get this information out there. And, you know, kind of like Carla, you've got to do this, Kim. I'm like, fine, fine. Okay. So David and I came together and we decided, well, well maybe there's something here. Maybe there's something here. And I wasn't convinced yet. I, I kind of still was thinking, is this a Kim Oliver thing? Or is this something that, that others could learn? And so we started to look there, there were starting to become other activist scholars. So Emer Enright and Jen Fassat um, are the people that just jump into my mind right now. But other people were starting to like, how are we going to work differently with girls? And I was still working with girls in my research, but I was working with boys and girls as we were putting together this student-centered inquiries curriculum process. And so we started to look across the activist scholars who were doing work with girls to see what was common in their work. And there were three things that, that I was committed to that I thought if, if they're going to be included in this kind of search, they've got to share some commitments. And one of the commitments was a belief that knowledge is produced in collaboration and in action. And so I wanted to look at the scholars who were working with people to make change with and for those people. I wasn't looking at people who were doing work on students, but rather with students, for students, and, and together coming to the knowledge that happens when you work in collaboration and in action. I wanted a commitment to the belief that merely documenting what is was no longer sufficient with respect to understanding how to better engage girls in physical activity and physical education, and as such move toward an intentional focus on studying what might be by collaborating with participants to find spaces for change. So again, I'm interested in this change piece. What are other people doing who are also interested in this change place? And finally, was a shared belief that social transformation starts at the micro level in localized contexts, if we really want to understand possibilities for change. Because we can have these grand ideas, but the reality is we've got to work at a small level if we want to systematically study what's going on and understand the barriers and understand the possibilities. And so those were the three things that, that I was really interested in remaining true to were those three beliefs. And so when I looked across the research and in 2000, and we were writing this maybe in 2014, I want to say 2013, 14, when I looked across all of that scholarship, what became very obvious with that there were four critical elements. And these critical elements have become what we now call the activist approach to teaching PE. And so Jackie Beth, I don't know if, if yeah, thank you. And so there, there are four critical elements to the activist approach. And I pull them apart for the ease of explaining, but they cannot come apart. They work together always. And I, I think that's the tricky part about this is people are like, well, I do this, or I do this, or I do this, but it isn't doing one or one or two or three. It's about pulling them together. And so student-centered pedagogy is the first element. And this is about intentionally seeking input from youth about what facilitates their interests, their motivation, their learning and their engagement in physical activity and what hinders it. And then using the information to guide our pedagogical decisions. It's not about doing what kids wanna do. 
but rather about understanding what is necessary for them to be willing to engage. So for me, in my context, this idea of variety of activity, we have to have variety of activity to want to engage. I had to to really think about what that would mean in the bigger picture of physical education. The second critical element to an activist approach is attentiveness to issues of embodiment. And I think when we wrote the book, we said something like critical study of issues of embodiment, but I have since changed that language because it's not accurate to me. And so now I, I refer to it as attentiveness. And so in a PE setting, it can mean lots of different things, but, but for us, it's about taking seriously how students are learning to think and feel about their bodies. And in particular, within physical activity settings. And then it's using the information to help create environments that are inviting for young people rather than embarrassing or frightening or painful. And so it's just that appreciation for how people's bodies in public matter. The third element is inquiry-based learning centered in action. And this is about using inquiry to understand um, not only how to create environments that better meet people's needs, but also using inquiry with youth to help them to start to identify what are some of the barriers to my physical activity engagement? What are some of the things that really help facilitate my physical activity engagement? And then working with them to figure out how do we negotiate these barriers in order to increase activity, either participation or opportunity, whether that be outside of school or within a physical education class. And then finally is this idea of listening and responding over time. And... I can't tell you how many times across my career I have heard, I listen to kids. I listen to kids. I do a lot of listening to kids. And I, I'll often find myself asking, well, what do you do with the information that you hear? Well, I listen to them. Mm, not enough. So it's about responding. It's about paying attention across time. It's about building into your pedagogy places where you invite students to provide feedback on what you're doing, and then use the feedback to make changes that can better meet their needs. Again, my kids will tell me I want to play dodgeball. We're not playing dodgeball. We're not playing dodgeball. We are not playing dodgeball. So it's not just doing what they want. But what is it about dodgeball you like? We love to hit people. So, right. So then we have to have conversations about that and why we're not doing that in, in a class that I'm in charge of. So it's more than just asking at the beginning of the year, it's about structuring places to continually seek guidance from those we serve. And so in my work, I use that student-centered inquiry as curriculum process to systematically listen and respond. But you don't have to do it that way. People do it all sorts of different ways. That's the way I pull these four critical elements together because I'm a structure person. And so I like to, like, I like structure. And so for me, it gives me a structure that is open and it gives me a structure that allows me to gather information that I need to make decisions as I go along. And our hope through creating the activist approach pedagogical model, which Again, we called it a pedagogical model, but I really do think of it as a pedagogical process, was that others could start to use the process in their work. And since our publication, so we, we published Girls, Gender, and Physical Education, an activist approach in 2015. And since that time, others have taken up this this approach and these ideas and they've they've used these four critical elements in a wide variety of activity settings from sport to firefighting camps to dance to to PE to co-ed PE to all girl PE to teacher education and we're seeing it across context and i think i am finally i think i am finally to the point where i feel comfortable saying this can be replicated by others in any context that they work. And the reason that I think 
it can be replicated and I think it can work is because those four critical elements, when you pull them together, allow you to be responsive to your particular context and your particular group of people. And so now I'm going to turn it, I guess, maybe back over to Carla to introduce Jackie Beth, who will tell you what we are doing with our work now. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much, Kim. And, and, and I love how you shared one of you know, the aspects that I believe is the beauty of the activist approach is this flexibility. You know, it is it's not a top-down approach, as you, you know, explain in a brilliant way. It is a bottle-up, so it's context-specific, it's around microchains. So thanks so much, Kim. Uh, our second presenter today is Jackie Beth. So Jackie Beth is from New Mexico State University. I'm delighted again to have Jackie Beth here. Uh, as myself, Jackie Beth study with Kim. Uh, her work with the activist approach is impressive. And what I really like is seeing how she has explored the activist approach in diverse and rich context. So dance, strange training, so spaces that I believe we are learning a lot, you know, contexts, rich contexts that we have been learning a lot. Today, Jackie will show us the evolution of the activist approach, so her perceptions around the evolution, and she'll also present a case study highlighting, you know, the activist approach in after-school dance club in a charter school in the US. So it's a pleasure to have you here, Jackie Beth. The floor is yours. Thanks, Carla. I appreciate you extending this invitation. And I also want to echo like you to Kim um, with a big gratitude. And it, it was life-changing for me to have that time in New Mexico also. So I'm truly grateful, Kim. Thank you a million, billion, trillion, gazillion, however many you can get it up to. So I was asked to talk a little bit about my perception of how the activist approach is continuing to evolve. And I think it's really cool because it's continuing to evolve in many ways, but it's not necessarily a linear process where this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. But, uh, but part of that is because the power of this approach is the listening and responding over time. And so as everybody keeps staying with it over time, we keep learning new things from the students that we work with, the youth that we work with, the adults that we work with to see what is possible. And it continues to evolve as people bring diverse groups together, especially in places where populations may have been excluded over time or excluded in their current state, so that we're truly trying to seek to invite everyone's voices into participation. And as we listen and respond to our students, so also are we listening and responding to our colleagues from around the world, uh, as we have mentors and critical friends who offer insights into these processes mm -hmm. as it creates an ongoing reciprocal effect of influence as the approach continues to evolve. So like Kim said, uh, while it started with and for middle school girls in physical education, the approach continues to evolve into co-ed physical education classes in places like the US, the UK, Spain, and many other places in sports contexts in the US and Mexico, work with socially vulnerable youth in Brazil and Australia, things like firefighting camps that we'll hear a little bit more about in Australia, and uh, contexts like dance in the US and Brazil. As it shifted into the co-education, physical education classes also, we also saw a need that arose for teacher educators like Kim was talking about to experience it for themselves and know more about how to, such, to implement such an approach and how that how it felt, how it experienced, and how we live and embody it together. And so people have used it with teacher education in places like Norway, the United Kingdom, Brazil, and uh, it's exciting to see how it continues to evolve. The approach is unique to each setting as people seek to identify and negotiate their existing barriers alongside people in their context, rather than just an assumed best practice or an authoritarian imposition of something, uh, but the approach allows us to question the status quo and, and then take action as we see gaps, as we see needs, as we see places where people are silenced. 
And so because it's a process and not a curriculum to install, we get to build this beautiful exchange to discover more than what we could come up with just on our own. And like Kim was saying, there are patterns that have emerged with the approach like student-centered inquiry as curriculum that we can follow a pattern, uh, but still it's not uh, a one way to do it, a one size fits all. Uh, so things like with our community work that we're doing with a come and go nature, or like we'll hear with Karen with the firefighting camp, the tenants, those four tenants Kim talked about, they shape and guide the patterns and structures to morph with the context. So something like building the foundation in our community context, we ended up doing that across the entire experience. And our context matters because that's where we get to shape and mold and make choices um, in connection with people's lives through this listening and responding. And this is what I think makes it able to replicate and work in so many different parts of the world um, because it is context-specific co-creation that we get to participate in. And this is part of our interest, like Kim was saying in the book, as we're looking uh, at different ways people are putting this together in their context to share different stories about what that looks like, whether it be physical education, physical activity, dance, sport, and so many different other ways that people are working to apply the tenants. And I don't know if Kim or Carla want to add anything else about evolution before I go into the case study. All right. So the case study that we're going to look at is from, like Carla was saying, a dance club setting. And I really enjoyed getting to be a part of this experience with, we had nine students and uh, three adults. And we had more students, but they weren't necessarily research participants. So we were in a project-based dual language K-8 charter school. And we were there a couple of times, or excuse me, a couple of semesters over the course of a year. And you'll see a little student drawing if you're here on Zoom with us today as part of the data entry, but just we had lots of creativity happening with our students. Uh, so this research took place with Kim and our colleague Raquel Aranda. And as a dancer by profession, one factor that took me into going back to school was beginning to notice that my friends and colleagues were beginning to exit dance. And so changing demands for their time, their energy, and their finances certainly played a role, but others were sadly no longer feeling comfortable in dance settings, whether it was because of mounting injuries or from environments that they really didn't want to participate any longer. As a dance educator, I wondered how alongside my students, we might foster welcoming atmospheres that valued student voice and their own embodied ownership through mutual listening and responding. I was looking for new ways to engage dance as I came across Kim's research with the approach. Uh, while individually, the four tenants that she talked about are not new to dance context, the activist approach did offer a different way as an organizing lens, as an alternative route to push against some of the status quo of unhealthy and authoritarian practices that happen in dance at times. So translating the approach from physical education into dance gave us space to question why and how traditional dance pedagogy has formed over time to act on what we might have space to grow and evolve within it. Um, so we followed the student-centered inquiries curriculum model to build a foundation, broaden students' perspectives, and then enter that cyclical co-construction process. And Carla asked me to share a little table here. And so these are just some of the samples of the questions as I kind of talked through uh, the context, but these are some of the kind of things that we were asking them. So to begin dispersed amongst dancing and icebreakers, we collected foundational information by asking questions, maybe on oversized sticky notes or on three by five cards uh, about in dance, sometimes I wish, or I get embarrassed when, I get frustrated when, I have fun when. And we had ongoing debriefings with the students to echo back what we were hearing and for the students to be able to then expand or redirect what we were hearing. Over the next classes, we would inquire about safe learning environments, bullying, teachers and students roles, and the hopes as we built the dance club together. And this guided the co-creation for what we would call our ways of working for how we would operate together. Woven into the first few weeks also were sampler lessons for students to experience different pedagogical practices, like Kim was saying with direct, co um, convergent, all the good, exciting things we have to offer. Um, so we would debrief about this with the new movement material as well. And the first semester, they voiced an interest in choreography 
And the next semester, they talked about wanting to just experience variety. At times, their ideas did go beyond our purview, like they wanted to visit the Space Shuttle Challenger. It was not going to be possible. But at other interests, we had to have strategic planning and narration on our part to scaffold them towards success, like building up choreographic skills. We also maintained a consciousness about whose ideas were represented so as not just to default only to the majority or to the loudest people. Stop screen. So one way we might think about this is what we gained and gave up as part of using an activist approach. And if we think about it within the building the foundation, we were able to build relationships and have ongoing conversations. One of the students said, you're always so supportive of us. And that participation and buy-in from the students, like the one that said, I wish class never ended. Um, we were able to uh, talk about what do we need and, and how do we keep you involved and what are your interests? And so from these ways of working, they also drew each other into the participation, which was a gain. They would say, hey, we all said you were gonna that we were gonna participate. You're not participating. Come on, let's do this. And so we gained this participation and buy-in from them. By broadening perspectives, we gained new ways of approaching teaching through the ways that we broke down the samplers. We tried it the first semester by breaking it down by topic. So we had hip hop or step or modern, as well as being able to try it again the next semester in a different way based on what we were hearing from them. They were interested more conceptually. So we approached through concepts like jumping or turning for how we might use those in different genres. So it, it gave us a new way to think about how we might organize our material. Another gain through co-constructing the curriculum would be that the students were listening to their own bodies and making choices. So they began to transpose the movements, modifying on their own as needed, uh, which is helpful for injury prevention and ownership of their dancing and their artistry. And responding didn't always mean doing whatever the dancers wanted to do, nor that the adults solved all of the problems, but rather we entered into a pattern of conversations towards possibilities, whether it was about cliquish behavior that emerged amongst some middle school students or invitations that they received from outside sources to choreograph for performances. So again, this ownership, this sense of ownership um, was brought about as they took initiative to have a potluck, sign up, bring and teach their own choreography. A couple of things we gave up along the way as part of using this activist approach and figuring out how to navigate the context uh, within building the foundation and true across the whole term would be our time in class, where in some worlds, the status quo exists for dancers to be seen, but not heard. We were not only asking them to interact with us during the session, but also to use our time to have focused discussions and debriefs about their perceptions, about their experiences and their hopes for our time together. Using class time for discussions can feel costly, but listening over the duration, especially by beginning this in the building the foundation, gave us a way to build trust over time. Um, something we gave up from broadening perspectives was the way that it's been done before. Like we said, we changed things between semesters because of what we were hearing from the students and we're being reminded that just because something has worked for one group doesn't mean that it may be the, the, mess, excuse me, the best match for the next group. Not everything we did worked. The first semester's group discovered that they preferred choreographing to performing when we had them go out on a performance experience, um, but we just kept with them imagining what could be possible. Another thing we gave up was excellence in performance, where dance can often push towards perfection. The samplers and broadening our perspectives was just to try it out. We didn't have to establish proficiency where perfection can be expected, but it gave us low risk ways to try out new things without expecting the mastery of it. This connected well with the data we were hearing from the students also about how they liked variety and being able to try things. To know what was possible, we gave up time in choreographic or performance development as a linear process to be able to see what was possible so that once we did get to the co-creation portion, the students could know things that they had access to that they may never have learned or experienced or discovered that they liked before. 
Lastly, the co-construction of the curriculum, something we gave up, was some of our concepts and expectations. So the students were saying, we want to play more games. And one of our facilitators was like, this isn't sports club, this is dance club. If you want to go play games, go over to sports club. But this, we were saying, okay, well, what could game-like experiences be possible for dance? So it, it helped us reconceptualize because we were willing to retune our, our ears. And then the idea of choreography, it's usually geared towards a performance trajectory. And in this case, they just wanted to create, they just wanted to imagine. So we had to consider our own perceptions and values to be able to respond to student interest. But by being willing to hold loosely to what we know about dance and still bring our teacher guts to our students by engaging with the dancers we were able to come out with a broader perspective of what dance can be. It can be fun. It can be choreographing without production. It can be game-like activities, variety, just physical activity for the purpose of physical activities sake. So just a small overview of our experience in dance club where we gained and gave up and explored with and alongside dancers. Thanks. Thanks so much, Jackie, Beth. And uh, you know how when we talk about, you know, approach models or ways of working in PE, sometimes we overemphasize the product. So the outcomes, what, you know, the kids learn during the process. And I think, you know, in sharing your case study, we could see the value of the process. So understanding the process, the messiness in the process, how rich it is. So thank you so much for sharing your context. Uh, our last presenter today, so I'm delighted to, uh, to have here with us Karen Lambert from Monash University. Karen, I consider my sister, uh, sister outsider, what Audre Lorde would say. Karen, it is a strong feminist scholar, queer scholar as well, uh, who is always challenged my thoughts. We always exercise what, uh, you know, bell hoops would say, our radical openness in our converse conversations. We have been writing provoking papers, what I loved. So Karen today will present a case study exploring the activist approach in a firefighting camps for girls. So Karen, the floor is yours. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much, Carla. It's, uh, I feel a little um, nervous here with uh, such the experts in the room. Uh, to a relatively straightforward concept seemingly on the slides um, that um, is getting legs in various other places. And um, I'm thrilled that I can be a part of this group. Um, firstly, what I'd like to do is acknowledge the people of the Bunurong Bunurong nations on whose lands um, I prepared this material and of the Darabin people where the data was collected and pay respects to ancestors, elders and families and extend any um, respect to any First Nations people who are present in today's session. Now, um, I'm not quite sure um, whether you folks uh, have engaged with much of my um, experiences over the last five or six, seven years, um, collecting data opportunistically through a firefighter friend um, in North America, um, and then using that data um, to think pedagogically about what might be possible in terms of variety in our physical education classes. So mine was a pedagogical task from the get-go, um, and always in the back of my mind was thinking about how that could be uh, improved in the camp settings. Um, but also how uh, it could inform and improve what we do in our classrooms and our pre-service teachers. So I used data collected over a couple of years in some camps in North America um, and that, that have been running for a number of years, some of them up to 12 years. Um, and these are typically firefighting camps where young people um, join as a summer camp program. So they, they, they're usually um, five to seven days long. Uh, and then so that informed and helped to inform the structure of uh, my, my colleague who runs a not-for-profit called Girls on Fire um, here in Australia and uh, helped her to inform her pilot of this. And it was a six-day camp held in 2018 in the summer, nice and hot in December up in Sydney, down by uh, a, a nice river. 
um, with a with a YMCA camp as a, as the partner. So all the partnerships are really important, and I don't know whether that's another dimension to start thinking about with regards to the activist approach as well. Um, I just want to give a little bit of a background about what the research kind of involved. Um, it, I've called this all along the sensory ethnography because I've been I was really fascinated myself about the smells and the sounds and the heats and the the sensations and the craziness that goes on in these camps. So I, I figured that get, tapping into those is going to be a really interesting way to actually attend to embodiment, but also attend to um, what young people were experiencing at particular times with regards to both their uh, sensory and embodied experiences, but also in terms of their learning. What is it that you're learning about yourself, about others, and about uh, this particular uh, skill or strategy that you're now learning. Um, we're fundamentally um, uh, about recruitment uh, into fire and emergency services, that old adage, um, you can't be what you can't see. So in Sydney, the participants were uh, leaders, and this, is, I think, is an interesting dimension um, to think about the activist approach. Who can do it? Who, what qualifications do they need? Um, and then what work does a, a, a consultant slash researcher have to do in order to um, bring them up to speed about being educators. So I worked with with women who uh, were fire and emergency service volunteers and they were on leave, some of them, and they came along um, and they volunteered in this camp for six days along with 20 young women um, who had chosen to come and their fees were supported. So there's some interesting dynamics going on there around uh, pay, financial, who gets to come. And also for the young women, um, this idea of being uh, chosen and also being um, kind of privileged to be there. So there was a lot of conversations for them, um, less about um, like Jackie Beth's kids and maybe some of um, Carla's and, and Kim's young young people um, about, you know, school context, they, they have to be there, whereas this is chosen. So it's a kind of a different theme already going on. So curiosity matters too, I think. And, and as, as for Jackie Beth and for Carla, we've all had our um, experience in Las Cruces and um, so um, I birthed this idea with Kim after one of the camps um, about wondering whether the activist approach could be embedded into these camps to firstly deepen connections um, between the participants themselves, but also between the leaders to get feedback loops between the leaders and the young people. Um, to bring them all into the room and, and talk to each other, but then to separate them and, and, uh, and improve for next time. Um, to, to inform the activities, how are we going, what's going on? So all of the similar things that we might do in a school setting or in a classroom. And fundamentally for both groups, the young women and also for the uh, leaders, develop their leadership uh, capabilities. Um, and of course, still introduce this as a way in which could be a career option in the future. So in the chapter that I've prepared um, in the um, in the book that Jackie Beth and Carla have both spoken about, um, I thought about matters of representation. And as I was doing this sensory ethnography, um, I went back to my data. And one of the things about my data was um, our, some conversations via email with Kim, um, some my fieldwork journal and the activities that I did in the camp over six days. So I ran debriefing sessions and briefing sessions. I had about 15 minutes. So unlike Jackie Beth and Carla and Kim having, you know, full semesters and, you know, 25 hours or something, um, I, I fundamentally got maybe maybe half an hour every day to do this kind of work. So in terms of gains and losses, definitely time, but I'm not quite sure where that fits, gains and uh, given aways, um, how it is refined, I'm still there in that space. But this idea of an autoethnography resonated with me um, because I had the um, information from the young women that I kind of did a bit of a triangulation thing um, because of the senses, what they were doing, the images that I saw, um, the activities uh, that the young people were doing. And you can see here on the right-hand side, this is, a, this is an example of what I've submitted to put into the textbook. So the chapter itself is written as a sensory autoethnography as well. So you can see there an image from a young person, activity that I did, my notes slash email to Kim, and then at the bottom, Kim's response. Now, you won't be able to um, read all of that, and I don't expect you to, um, 
certainly get the textbook at some point. <laughs> but um, fundamentally, I just wanted to show you, I didn't write it in prose because this autoethnography idea, um, it felt to me that it had lots of moving pieces and everyone's spoken about those moving pieces, the moving pieces for the young people, for the camp organisers, for the people who were doing the catering, for all the fire trucks that came in and all the water that got thrown around on the ground. Um, but everyone was involved in this really um, massive time-constrained experience. And I felt I felt that it was a nice way to represent the, the experience in a really compressed kind of way. So that's how it's represented. And I think that's really important to think about your role as both a researcher and a teacher, the auto, um, as well as how you might represent or share your information that you gain should this be a research path for you and um, to share it with others. So um, by way of um, instructions that Carla gave me um, about thinking about um, uh, gains and giving away, um, in the chapter I frame this as lessons and learnings um, and uh, my this is my first uh, learning um, here and, and fundamentally I think it's a learning everybody could, could, could aspire to or think about. It's like know your context and know your participants and it, it seems rather simplistic but there are some particular aspects that I want to draw attention to with regards to the context and what I've learned and I've learned about this context that it's actually okay for me to let go of my outcomes and I think for the activist approach that's a really important thing if you're going to actually be attending to uh, um, young people's experience then uh, where you're going has to be where they're saying you should go. Um, so giving up a few things. Um, everyone is continually navigating and negotiating their context. This was a kind of stressful environment. So there was lots of tension involved uh, in, the, in the leaders and the young people picked up on that. So as they were navigating and negotiating a new context and new friends and new experiences, so too were the organisers and the leaders in the group. Um, so I'm trying to do this activist approach with, um, if you imagine it, it's like doing it with the young people in a school and the pre-service teachers at the same time, except some of these are like 70 years old, um, um, these teachers. Um, with regard to the participants, um, I, look, I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm an old school post-structural feminist. So yes, positionality and subjectivity always matters. Um, but in this particular case, thinking about how young people were being positioned and who was doing the positioning and how that manifested and influenced the ways in which they became particular kinds of subject is, is actually really important. And uh, yeah, so I think keeping that in mind from a theoretical perspective, being informed by other approaches. Um, I think sometimes there's a bit of a gap um, or a silence between um, voice and speaking. Uh, I noticed a lot of the time I had to um, give up, for example, um, expecting the young people to give um, critical feedback about the leaders um, because they'd come into this environment, um, they were supported in the environment and they knew they were kind of privileged in that kind of way. So they were reticent. So I had to reframe how I was speaking about it um, and how I was guiding them to give feedback. Um, so they, that, the thinking and using their voice, it was a lot of teasing out. And I think in a short time period, um, it's really hard to develop rapport enough to be able to tease that out of young people. So all good things to think about. Uh, and then related to that, most people, whether they're young or old, pre-service teachers, even us, reflection and feedback is actually quite hard. Um, and so there's probably some opportunity to do a little bit more education around that um, for them in the camp settings. Um, the second big le uh, learning that I had was um, planning, <laughs> planning for the best, um, but being prepared kind of for the worst. Um, so being prepared to modify or throw out your plan. Um, and I've learned with regards to that, that there's such a tension when you're trying to teach people as well as do research in the field. So I was trying to teach young people to do a particular kind of thing and absolutely invested in what they were saying so I could write a research paper. Um, so, and also with the leaders, trying to encourage them to actually listen to young people instead of doing their thing, but they're you know, they're having their patterns and their behaviours um, associated with their inexperience at being educators. Um, the activist approach, I think the, the, the kicker, because hopefully somebody would ask this, hey, but did it work? Um, look, I think it has potential in the camp settings, but I think with all of these lessons now and all these things uh, in mind, um, I, I think 
um, I have to really, really think seriously about the 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 the, the timing uh, and how 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 that gets structured and insisting upon um, blocks of time in order to be able to do this work. It can't be just a throwaway fifteen minutes here and there. So more consistency in that regard. Um, I think for me, um, what I lost was a bit of listening because I was there collecting data. I was running around. I had cameras. I had a video. I had books and things. So I bit, became a bit disconnected from what was going on um, and, uh, and and the listening was missing for me but also for the participants, so listening to each other um, and, uh, and therefore giving that feedback. Um, I think have the plan but stay in that space where you're willing to and, and need to keep working for your participants. Um, the process is a learning exercise and activity for everyone. Everyone, it's, it's a new experience and everyone is going through something. Um, so, yeah, I think stepping back and thinking about that was a really important moment. Um, and, um, and it came through a couple of emails with Kim where I just teased out things that were going on and what I could do next. So um, I also realised, and some of you may, if you're a bit of a type A um, person as well, and I know we're pretty high achievers here uh, in the room, um, as both a researcher and a teacher, I'm pretty hard on myself. And I think that that's a really important thing to recognise about your own subjectivity, um, but also about your own positionality. What does that then mean you can and cannot do in these spaces? Um, so if I was thinking about doing this all again and at the end of um, at the end of the chapter that I've that I've prepared for um, um, for the textbook, um, I, I kind of frame up my lessons, but also some recommendations. And my my recommendations would be if I did this again, I would follow my intuition. I would be more patient, slow down, let go a bit, always share and don't take things personally. So that's it from me, Carla. Um, hopefully um, folks might have a few questions, a bit of the research, as well as how um, a sensory ethnography might appear in research data. Thanks. Thanks so much, Karen. And, and I think if, if Jack Beth, you know, did a brilliant job in explaining the importance of us to value the process, I think your presentation touched us a lot in terms of how we engage in this transformational journey when we are learning the activist approach. So how you change and the gains and lost in, in this process was brilliant to see. Thanks so much. Uh, we have questions. Uh, I think we have questions in two areas and I will throw all questions and open the floor for the panel to answer. So a group of questions that we have they are in relation to the context and trying, you know, the active, activist approach in diverse contexts. Then Risto asks us, you know, it's easier to do at a secondary level. So that's that th those are one of the questions in relation to the context. And also Ariel. Ariel is, is working with survivors of child abuse and also people disconnect with, disconnected with physical activity. So the first question is, would you know, the activist approach work in those contexts as well? And we also have a methodological question. So in a second block, uh, and then we have Risto asking in terms of ethics application, what are some of the, you know, challenge that we face when we have applications uh, where we co-create, you know, projects where we co-create with young people. So the challenge and how we deal with the challenge. And a second methodological question is, I think, Ariel, your question is great. So how the activist approach would be different than other co-designing approaches. So it's possible the activist approach in different contexts and in, in specific, you know, Risto's and Ariel's uh, context and how we would see in a more methodological way. Yeah, so I want to just open uh, to the panel uh, to answer those questions and then we have to end today's event. So let me, can I start with a comment and then I'll start with Risto's question because there's an absolute answer to it. First of all, when Karen says, you know, we have to, 
look at if we're being hard on ourselves for people who are now trying to take this up. I had 10 years before I put language to what I was doing. So I didn't try to do it all in the same study. So don't kill yourself if it doesn't work the first time. Because 10 years, people, and then another 10 to develop another set of language. So it's not a process you learn overnight. So really, really, you you if you're going to beat yourself up over it, it's not worth the emotional stress, I don't think. But let me answer your question, Risto, about do I feel the activist approach is easier to do at the secondary level? We only do it at the secondary level. It was designed with and for adolescents. We do not use this at the elementary level at all. So we do it in middle schools. My colleague Raquel Aranda does uh, her pre-service teachers are with the middle schools. My pre-service teachers are with the high schools. So we do it both in secondary, uh, middle and high school. Also, we've done it in block scheduling, which I love. But this year we went to year round school and we have classes that are 40 minutes, 42 actually. And so we're doing it in classes that are 42 minutes. I don't like that as much as 75 minute classes. So yes, it's easier in block scheduling, but yes, it can be done in shorter periods of time, but I would never do it with elementary age children. I would, I could be student centered. I could attend to issues of embodiment, but this was not designed for that level. I maybe some, although I, I did some stuff like this with fifth graders, but no, I would not go into my elementary, my elementary methods folks don't do this at all. So that's directly to your one question, Risto. And similarly, like Karen had a shorter, she didn't have the full semester and I've done it in week-long intensives with high schoolers for different events. And I've also done it in weekend choreographic residencies. So where we're trying to build towards an end product of how do we how do we do that together in a short period of time? It looks very different, like we were saying, but to employ those tenants in such a way that we build a foundation together, broaden our perspectives of what can we do together, and then continue forward. IRB, um, I, we haven't had any issues with IRB. Um, and I don't know if that is because from the beginning of my work on, I was working with minors. And so I had to get very good at writing what I was going to do and what I was going to say and how I was going to, you know, photos and journals and and putting, you know, um, video cameras. And I, I don't we have never had anybody say you can't do this. And so, but again, when I was writing, I'm like, I'm looking at how girls are thinking about their body. So we'll imagine that with IRB, right? All the issues around that. But, you know, specifically, what are their perceptions of physical education? How can we help them be more active when they name their barriers? Um, so, so I think part of it is a skill in learning to write IRB with minors. And it's the only, like, I don't know how to write IRB with adults because I don't work with adults. Um, but Jackie Beth, have you had in your recent, like the recent things we've sent through with the school districts have gone right through. There's been a couple of, you know, they will ask for a little bit more information, but we go through our university and then we go through the school district board and then we go to the principals and then we go to the teachers and then we go to the students and then we go to the parents. So we we hit them all, all the way through. And sometimes it's just a rewrite that they they don't understand. They, they got all caught up on one word that was in Portuguese for one of the IRBs. Like it was a huge ordeal and it, there wasn't another word for it. And like that was the biggest stumbling block, but we seem to be able to get our, our things through, you know, with diligence. And it is pretty broad of, of what we are describing too, of we will be in class, we'll be recording class, we will be making notes in class, we will be transcribing interviews that we do with students, we will be audio recording the videos that we do with students, they will produce artifacts as a part of our work together, and, and just listing and so there is lots a, of physical activities. We'll try different physical activities. Um, 
Yeah, and I was wondering how methodologically we we are using in, 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 in our publications participatory action research as a way. So I think if we educate, you know, ethics people like the panel, the committee that we are using a way of working that, you know, has been here forever as well. So I think that, that quite, it's quite helpful with multiple multiple data sources and so on, and also open. So I, I for example, in some of my projects, I decided to use photo voice in the middle of the project. So I had to come back to the ethics and explain because the data collection will emerge across the project, you know, so that flexibility should be explicit in the ethics application. And Ariel, to your question in relation to, you know, working with survivors, uh, I, I wrote recently a paper in Sporting Society where I talk about ethical issues that emerge when we work with refugee background young people. Uh, I know there are different conditions, but I think some of the ethical issues around sensibilities in building relationship, so maybe the building the foundation phase could be extended in your context for sure. How you know your positionality and you share your positionality is central in that aspect. Uh, and 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 I think that that could give you insights. Uh, and and for sure, this uh, I truly believe the activist approach, you know, is around listening and responding to kids' voices. Uh, one strategy that I've been using, I've been using young people as research assistant in some of my work, and that has been really helpful. So it's this cultural bridge that, you know, young people, insiders can, you know, help in some sense in creating uh, this space where you can, yeah, develop the relationship and create a safe space. That, you know, to, to do your activist approach. So we are running out of time. I know I just want to say thank you so much, Kim, Karen, and Jackie Beth. Uh, it was wonderful to be here. Uh, yeah, and I cannot wait for us to publish our book. I think that would be an amazing resource for everybody who would like to try and engage in this transformative journey, you know, in learning the activist approach. Thank you. Thanks, you all.